Welcome to the Technoid Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Katoon. Today's show is sponsored by Active Campaign. Go beyond email marketing with True Automation by signing up at activecampaign.com slash technori. Get your first two months for free. Today's guest, Amal Sarva, is the founder and CEO of Notel. Uh, if the name sounds familiar, he was also the co-founder of Virgin Mobile, uh, among many other companies, uh, Peak, Halo Neuroscience, Notable. Um, so he's he's been around. He's one of the OGs from the, the Palo Alto days, and we, we go into this whole kind of deal um, not just his journey, but there's, there's like, I don't know how to put this. So it's kind of funny. You're gonna have to listen to the whole, the whole show. It's a longer podcast, but it's well worth your time. Uh, not just talking about how to build a company. They just raised 400 million at like a $10 billion valuation. They're, um, they're, a, they're, they are the, the standing giant in the commercial real estate flex space, uh, space. And, and I, I laughingly said, like, I was trying to keep where we work out of the conversation. Um, and he enabled me to, to bring it into the conversation, and it was—I'm so glad that he did because it really is. This could go down as one of the most epic stories. If you—if you listen, you're going to find out that the TAM for this is insane. I mean, the amount of money that, that this market could be is insane, and they collectively might be one percent. They get to ten percent of the market, and it's—it's it's game over. And you look back on the story, very, very few. Um, you know, I can—we talked about it in the show, but I, I can only think of a, a few stories of like Google taking down Yahoo and Facebook taking down MySpace, uh, Netflix crushing Blockbuster. There's only a few stories where uh, there's an incumbent and then somebody comes up and they they just crush and they get to that magical 30% of market number. But none of the stories I mentioned did their direct competitor implode. And the the story isn't written yet for, for WeWork, but they have been chopped off at the knees, uh, to say the least. And so this conversation uh, with Amal covers so many things. And, and I tell you all these things because it's not even the most important note from the show. The biggest part of this, and I've seen it time and time again, we name drop some of the people in the show, but Mark Randolph from Netflix co-founder, John Chambers, CEO of Cisco, formerly um, Victor Chardelli, the, the CEO founder of Guaranteed Rate, there are founders, CEO, leaders, and it's not just business, it could be anything, sports, politics, whatever, that are so great because they are not only visionary, but they're as reflective as they are visionary. And we open the show up talking about the fact that Amal is into reading the history of world leaders and female world leaders and female leaders in general and just leaders and just leaders abroad, Napoleon, anyone, be, because of the lessons you can learn from it and understanding that you are up against it, but like not even remotely close to up against what say Napoleon was or somebody else. Um, and I, I have noticed this trend that, that the best, the very greatest leaders, not necessarily that they are a leader because they're reflective, but the very good leaders tend to be reflective. And this podcast is a, is a perfect example of that. Another podcast that you probably would get a kick out of if you listen to this, not just because of the reflective visionary leader, but also because you dig real estate, would be the show I did uh, with At Properties founder Thad Wong. Um, you can get that by following Technori on Spotify or go to Google or Apple Podcasts. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, you should definitely check this out. And one last note, I want to... Uh, Give a quick shout out to my good friend and a friend of the show and a person who feeds my my guy Sam on a daily basis, Farmer's Fridge founder Luke Saunders. Um, I want to give him a shout out for getting named to Time's list of the 100 best inventions of 2019. 
We are gigantic fans of Farmer's Fridge, and I'm a huge fan of Luke and the team. So shout out to, uh, to Luke and Farmer's Fridge for that. This is my interview with Amal Sarva, CEO and found, co-founder of Notel. So obviously, the way things are going right now in the world, I, I feel like uh, there was a, an interesting tweet that I recently saw from a guy who runs sports media, uh, Emerson Sports, who said, if you, if you read a lot, um, you will notice that the world is always on fire. If you don't read a lot, then you're like, oh my God, everything is, is blowing up. And the reality is this, this world has always been on fire. Um, and I think sometimes we lose sight of, of perspective and we don't study the leaders and the people of the past that kind of have set the tone for the world. And I, I just think it's fascinating when you, when you meet other people who run big companies or they're very successful, uh, I found that the majority of them tend to learn from the past. Uh, what is your kind of what? What are some of the the leaders that you follow and the people you read and the, and the why the fascination? Yeah, I mean that is so true, I, and it touches like a, a whole bunch of different things that I believe to be true and I believe to be important. I mean, one of them is that there are two big outlooks in the world that you run into. You you find the the folks who believe everything is different, and you find the folks who believe everything is the same, <laughs> and it's a super old division. I mean, so the ancient true. Greeks so were doing true. it too. There's like, you know, a river, is the river different or is the river the same? I mean, every drop of water is different. There was a school of thinking where every splash is a new crisis and a new thing and never before seen. And it is in a way like distinct and unique. And as we kind of surf the, the river of contemporary history, it feels like every fresh, fresh insult in the, in the news every morning is never before seen. And then, you know, for that same like 2,000 years, from the ancient Greeks, there are these folks that just, and even the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Chinese, I mean, just like the world is a single thing. And very few things you can ever encounter are entirely novel. And, yeah. and so there is so much to draw from, from history. And yeah, books. I mean, I, I wonder if it is true what you say, that like, you know, big leaders are, uh, are, are really big readers. But not, not all overlooked. leaders, as we've come to find out. <laughs> Oh my lord! Yeah, <laughs> that is, we will we'll spare really ourselves. Respect, you know? We won't go down that channel. But I, 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 I guess should I should edit my remark and say, not all leaders are readers. But what I have found, and this this could be world political, really in particular business, um, the the very best leaders tend to be very reflective. That's one of the observations. Yeah. The, the bad ones tend yeah. to just watch themselves. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to think deeply about the choices you have to make and who you are. And, I mean, other people have done it for you. I mean, it is not easy to write a book. Anyone who sat down and tried to write uh, will will know that a, a book is the product of a very compressed and dense set of ideas being stitched together after a lot of careful work. And it is a gift. If you can read about Napoleon or Josephine or Cleopatra or Caesar and uh, see the thinking on what happened and why and what motivated them and what were their choices like. These are wonderful object lessons to use. I mean, my situations are perhaps not as grand as Mark Antony and Cleopatra facing the Roman Empire at their shore, but sometimes it feels like that. And there's a lot to get from their, their bravery and uh, their ambition and, and their drive. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think one of the books that I've really, I've read it several times, is The Fathers of Finance. Um, I, I just think that there's, and it's not just because of the business thing. I, I think 
you know, I, I also read a lot of stuff on like I've read the books on Stalin and Mussolini and Idi Amin and like not to stick to just dictators, but there's something. Well, yeah, there's something. <laughs> the but there, but there's of your podcast. Yeah, right. But there's something unique about their perspective because they're so, you know, obviously there's a lot of bad, but they're they're so unique. They're so different. Um, and I, I think it's very important from a reflection standpoint, maybe. And this, I think, tells a lot about me, but also. You know, some of your statements, I'm, I'm reading into this and thinking that you would be one of those people who falls on the, the side that is, uh, it's not necessarily new. Like, you're not a person who's like, oh, my God, the world's on fire and chaos. You, you have reflection. Am I, am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, well, and even in, like, thinking about business, uh, the company that I've been building these last few years, Notel, uh, you might think, oh, real estate business, offices, really distributed around the world must be totally different than anything you've done before. You know, I, I did mobile phones and smartphones, enterprise software, bicycles. I did all kinds of stuff, both from tech through biology and neuroscience. And I didn't do real estate. So, oh, is this one totally different? And, well, in, in a lot of ways, it's really similar. The, the mechanics of creating something new and introducing it to the world and, and getting on the long march of, towards building a movement and towards victory, uh, they involve a lot of the same stuff. I mean, whether you're creating like the, the suffragette movement or civil rights or trying to lead a country through war, many of the same things obtain for certainly for leaders, but also for the problem solving. So I, I feel like I've learned so much and I've been, I mean, the last couple of years I've been really into like Napoleon and, and some of these other uh, great war fighters. And in the last few months, a colleague, um, our head of marketing, actually a, a woman named Allison Stoloff, she turned me on to this idea that, and I mean, it's like a huge gap. I didn't know anything about the biggest and most important women leaders in history. I just sort of thought they were people's wives, naively, yeah. and that can't be right. I mean, Josephine, who was uh, Napoleon's wife and the Empress of Europe, and like hugely powerful woman, she didn't just like get picked up at a ball. She was so ambitious and driven, and so creative and so brave. She did unbelievable stuff to get that, get that seat, and and. And she is so impressive. And so I've, been, I've lately been learning about some of these underappreciated women heroes uh, from history as well. I um, I think it's it's interesting not to to make this even, you know, to simplify things, because obviously, you know, the creation of Virgin Mobile and obviously NoTel and all the other things in between are not simple feats. Um, but in a lot of ways, going back to your original statement about writing a book, I have looked at my entrepreneurial journey and I, I assume that you kind of do it just based on our conversation here a little bit, um, that it's about writing a story. It's telling a story. It's writing a story. It's building a story. And this might sound like a kind of a bizarre analogy or, or quip here, but like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I read his book not that long ago, and I'm obviously a, a very big Arnold fan going back to the movies and the, and the bodybuilding, but he used to talk about, uh, you look at like Michelangelo and some of the artists, the greatest artists of the world, you know, they had to sculpt it. They had to build this thing, you know, from one block oh, yeah. of marble. He has this cool line, uh, Schwarzenegger does, that an unflexed muscle is like an unpolished gem. Correct. <laughs> he has that analogy to artistry. Well, yeah, because he talked about as a bodybuilder, you know, I have to increase, if I'm going to increase my biceps an inch, I have to increase my entire body an inch. And that is that is a, something that takes a lot of dedication, a lot of time, but also a lot of preparation, a lot of uh, attention to detail and discipline. And I think the same is said about any great story or book you've ever read. And I think the same is also said about any great business you've ever watched or, or been a part of is that you have this vision, 
you have a general roadmap that you've reverse engineered and there's going to be some twists and turns and things you did not expect and they will maybe become the climax of the story and there will certainly be antagonists and other people. Um, but in the end, you physically have to get up and lead your people and build this thing. And it doesn't matter if it's Virgin Mobile or it's Notel. You you literally yeah, have to get up every sure. day and, and exercise whatever it is that's going to get the team in the right position. And, and that I think that's why at least from my vantage point, why a lot of the great leaders are so reflective, like yourself. I think you have to be uh, because you kind of know where you're going, but you kind of don't, and you don't have time to make the mistakes uh, that are, you know, total. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, storytelling is an underappreciated skill uh, among great leaders. And among my colleagues and, and others that, that I watch, like a lot of what gets you going early on isn't necessarily only the ability to knit together a bunch of facts that seem loosely joined and, and have them point an arrow to where you're going. It's it, what, what get, makes you successful early often is um, just some kind of mastery, you know, like you're an amazing biologist or a finance whiz or whatever, and you're just really good analytically at, at sort of doing the work and getting to the insight. You're sort of in the laboratory doing the science, but to make it really bigger than yourself and to take it as far as it can go, it does require other people and that you do need to be able to, stitch together what they see into what you see and help them find out which direction to go and, and communicating. And I mean, it's such a big part of leadership. On the other hand, there is this kind of hocus pocus uh, addiction that has been troubling Silicon Valley for the last couple of years. And it comes and goes every few years. And, you know, this recent disaster with that big co-working company we work. Uh, I wasn't sure like if you wanted to go there. <laughs> I had that <laughs> written down with a circle. It's like, uh, we'll see where this goes. I rarely spend an hour without someone asking me about And, and I was hoping to be that hour that it didn't come up. So I was leaving it there, <laughs> hanging fine. there. Um, I'm fine. I'm fine. We can talk about anything you like from uh, geopolitics to, uh, to cancer treatments. We but, are, but that one is certainly relevant. We are fastly approaching all of these topics. I, I'll, we'll transition here, but I, I just wanted to say this is kind of an interesting observation. When I was at Northwestern uh, for grad school, we had a, a teacher, uh, Bobby Calder, who was at Kellogg at business school, whatever. And I, I actually thought based on what you were talking about, telling the story, he used to make uh, the, the people in his class for, I'm forgetting which exact class it was. It was, you know, whatever marketing slash business finance, um, take a quarter at Medill school of journalism to learn how to craft a story. Because he said, if you are going to be an entrepreneur or you're going to be a CEO, or you're going to you know be a CFO leading uh, a corporate quarterly call, you're going to need to know how to keep people's attention with a good story. I was like, I never thought of that before, and I heard it, and was like, yeah, that's probably a good – at the time, I thought it was a waste of time. But in retrospect, it's probably the most valuable class I ever took. Oh, yeah. I'm glad that you feel that way. I mean, I teach entrepreneurship uh, at Columbia, and we always spend about 20% of the sessions on storytelling. And it's a thing that your average, like, engineering background or business background kind of person, economics, whatever, they, they haven't really thought much about it. You know, they, they – and there are patterns, like there is a lot to learn. I mean, once you say the word genre, it, it really helps a lot. Like if you think about um, the, the most often told tales, like, you know, the Hollywood kind of movie machines and stuff, and, and you apply the, the vernacular they use, it, and, and, and you'd recognize, oh, okay, stories actually fit into certain patterns. And the name is genre. You got your mystery, you got your quest, you got your romance. You know, there's like, I don't know, there might be, there might be 10, there's probably only three or four. The quest is definitely one of them. 
there's this like rags to riches, good fortune one. Uh, and I think in the words of uh, Jorge Luis Borges, there's only two more. There's love between two people and love between three people. Yes. <laughs> and not, all of those, so not all of those are useful in business, but you can find your pattern. It's usually the quest to the rags to riches. And, and uh, all of those you know, found themselves in the great Gatsby. And that's why that's been an epic forever. <laughs> yeah. One of my absolute yeah. favorite books. Um, so I, I want to pivot into the, the business itself and sort of your journey, because um, I do think it's very interesting and it's a, we're at this sort of, I mean, you're obviously way ahead of the, of the curve here. Um, but for those who are living in the business world now, and they're seeing sort of this co-working slash um, gig economy slash work remote slash businesses scaling really, really quickly and, and being sold and acquired and sort of piecemealed on. It's happening, or at least it seems like it's happening more now or uh, than, than I can remember in my career. And you were ahead of this enough to build a company around solving what would ultimately become a serious problem for businesses, whether it's about how they expand and how they lease or how they, how they get space, but also culturally, what a space looks like with your team, whether it's small or big, or it's a, a team that's been brought in, do they work in the office, out of the office? It, it's a very interesting spot. And obviously, for a lot of reasons, thankfully, very different from the model that was WeWork. Uh, not what was, I guess they're still there. We'll see what happens with SoftBank, but um, that is WeWork. Tell me a little bit yeah. about kind of the, the early uh, itch that you started to see that becomes no tell in the future. I have spent... I guess all the years since I got into grad school. So basically I graduated from college, like right at the end of the nineties. And I kind of felt like I was, I had missed Silicon Valley. So I went to graduate school in Palo Alto and I'm at Stanford and I'm hanging around. I'm like, Oh, okay. It's not over. There's like all this stuff going on. And I'm sort of sniffing around, sniffing around. And then I started getting involved in things. And the first one that got really big was Virgin Mobile, became a public company. It was amazing. Millions and millions of customers. And I did a bunch of other companies over the years. And, and by the time we were getting to, to Notel in the middle of 2015, I had been doing it for a while. And I, I would regard myself as a member of, of the tribe, this like Silicon Valley tribe. There's just a set of ways that people do stuff uh, that emanates from there. And now they do them in a lot of other places, but there's a, just a set of patterns and strategies that are often used. What, finally happened because in the early days all that stuff was existing only in the digital purely simulation of a computer somewhere kind of world over time the 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 techniques of that tribe have come to bear on certain aspects of the real world as well and so it finally got to office but it didn't get to office first like it got to a lot of other stuff too like taxis and you know uh, you know sharing your apartment and there's all these places where as mark andreessen the venture capitalist says software began eating the world and office is finally one of them but in 2015 there wasn't that much going on there were a few of these co-working companies that were starting to get big you know there was certainly we work and there were a bunch of other ones that were quite small all around the the world and I was looking at that with my co-founder, Edward. He and I had been working on a bunch of different companies together and investing in a few startups and things like that. And in the middle of 2015, we took a look at the trend, this sort of phenomenon of co-working. And we asked ourselves whether it was real, because there was certainly a lot of noise about it. And we, we decided to ask ourselves seriously. So we sort of did the analytical work that we normally do when we evaluate a company idea. And the first big surprise to us was, it's actually like a sensible business in, in a bunch of ways. Like 
people really do want to be able to just get an office, work in it, not worry about anything, not have to go to Ikea and buy chairs and just like do it. So that part seemed to make sense. <clears throat> and it seemed like people spent so much money in the DIY version of this when you're like buying furniture and whatnot. The DIY version of it was so inefficient that it was actually more expensive than the pretty uh, sizable fees that were being charged by the co-working companies. So people were saving money by using co-working, uh, but the co-working companies were actually making money. They were able to charge a price that was a lot higher than what their costs were. And so that was kind of cool. But then there were a bunch of problems with it too. Like it seemed to be very focused on small groups of people. Anyone who's ever been to co-working, you're walking around, there's all these people on headphones sitting in little cubicles or maybe sitting at a big open table. There's not a lot of privacy. It's tons of small groups of people. Co-working, that is it. No matter how often I've heard some of these guys say, oh, we focus on enterprises and stuff, it's invariably like a three-person sales team for some global company sitting in Oklahoma City or something like that. It's, it's really about these small teams, and that was the first red flag for me because the economy is not tiny groups of people. Even though I have spent most of my career either working alone as like the first person in a company or all the way through it being a few dozen or a few hundred, the vast majority of people in the world, and, that tre and this trend is accelerating because of technology and globalization, the vast majority of the workforces are large companies. Like a Microsoft or an Amazon has got like half a million employees. That half a million is more than all the people that work in startups in America. It's not like that's just in one company. And then there's the Fortune 500 has another 499 to count. You know? So that was the first big mistake I thought they were making, and that was the second one. The way they were doing their um, – they would, they would like acquire sites to do leases on these huge buildings, invest huge amounts of money. It was really clear to me they were going to lose money for a long time. So they're focusing on really small businesses and then they're spending outsized amounts of money to try to get them into their, into their properties. Now I was saying this basically in the wilderness starting in 2015, based on that conviction, we started building an hotel where we would only focus on bigger companies and have a much more capital efficient model. And I'm saying it in 2016 and 17, and people are rolling their eyes at me in 2018. By 2018, we're starting to get big. Early 2019, we're the second biggest player in the world in this category. We had gone from, you know, one one-thousandth the size of WeWork to almost one-tenth of their size, and, and we're actually getting even closer. And suddenly in 2019, everyone notices. Everyone notices the stuff we've been saying, that the businesses really, co-working's not the thing. It's this other thing. And so this has been a, a really interesting year of, of validation of our basic strategy. Um, and, you know, of course, I do not wish ill upon the people that work at those companies because that one in particular is going to have a really tough time. But yes. it has been really good for Nutel. It's been really good for our business. I, I cannot argue with any of that. And, and the, the funniest thing is, like, we got – so this is a random sidebar, but regarding WeWork in a sense, um, really more about the co-working phenomena than anything – um, we used to have these gigantic events here in Chicago at Chase Auditorium. We'd have, you know, 500 plus people and it was a pitch event. You know, there'd be five companies pitching someone like yourself as a keynote and investors and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs would all gather and, and meet up. And we, we ended up stopped doing it mostly because the barrier of defense for us was no one else had an event space like an auditorium that they could have access to. And we did. Um, and all of a sudden these, these coworking uh, shops popped up all over. There was like 87 of them popped up between 15 and 17 in Chicago. And now anyone could host an event. Anyone could do anything. And it was basically just free drinks, free, you know, finger foods and whatever. And it just crushed our audience. And we, we started getting to this competing 
for for bodies because we just needed to fill the room and sponsorship and blah blah blah. And I remember having a conversation with one of the folks at WeWork who was trying to poach us away from auditorium. And he, he gives me, he was fairly high up at the time. He ended up getting into actually, um, he was a director working under Adam by the time everything hit the fan. But um, I remember sitting there and he's telling me this whole story. And I was like, I, I get it fundamentally. I'm not stupid. I understand the opportunity. Um, but isn't this one of those things where had Starbucks just invested in P.O. boxes? That we, like, <laughs> isn't that basically like what's going on here? Because I don't see, to your point, I don't see the the real value uh from a monetization standpoint that i that they were seeing i just didn't i i thought that i knew the people who were leaving my events and going to work at those places and and were were basically living there i knew what they were and i knew kind of how frequently the turnover was and and how much time they were spending there and the stickiness isn't there if you're not actually coming downtown and and working every day at that office you're not going to pay for it um, and yeah. it just and you, have a, you have a backup plan, right? Starbucks. Always. Or even worse, your living room couch. For, and um, and that's a very bad teams. barrier to, to contend with because you have to con- – it's the same – and this sounds stupid, but it's the same problem that I encountered in the event world, which was in order to get you to stay, I had to start investing money in stupid shit that had nothing to do with any of the stuff that I really was trying to bring you here for. And that is a, yeah, a real tough spot. And you, you found your yeah. way around that. And, and I'd, I'd love to figure out, like, so now as you, you start, you know, scaling up and now you're, you're a, a, you know, not that you weren't a competitor before, now you were absolutely in the space. You are now in the driver's seat for, for what this opportunity truly is and was for the last, you know, five years that people just didn't quite see. Uh, where do you see yeah, this going? So. Yeah, we have that opportunity. I mean, the, the big tidal wave is, is flex flexibility and office. So the tidal wave is not better parties or kombucha or like, (laughs) you know, the word community is often used in in the co-working context. Other silly words are used like vibe or experience or consciousness. And I think actually it's just, it's, it's a little, it's a little more basic than that. The office is a place where companies bring their people together so they can get stuff done. Now that's a really practical goal. And, you know, different people have different styles. They want to create in their office. That's certainly important. But the way you get office, if you're one of the biggest companies in the world, is essentially unchanged in, I don't know, 300 years or 500. Like, it really very little has changed. The, the global head of, of real estate for a huge company, you know, I don't know, maybe like a Starbucks or a Shell or a Cargill to pick like a Midwestern champion in the, in the food and agriculture space. Uh, they have people who need to get on a plane, go walk around, look at 10 places. Someone hands them some printed PDF laminated kind of thing. They flip through all these books. They hire lawyers. They negotiate. It takes months. They take more space than they need. They're just doing And then they have to hire contractors and architects and the design and the thing. It takes months. They, they start searching for offices 18 months in advance. Yep. There is no other department in the company where you know what you're going to need 18 months in advance. The, uh, the marketing department does not have a strategy for 2021 that's fleshed out and paid for today. Like, and somehow in the real estate area. So finally, if you could change that, that flexibility driver, that's the thing that I think all the big corporate heads of real estate, all the CFOs and, and CEOs, they just want because they can't predict the future. And what we have been working on now for the last four years, I think we figured it out, is how to give real companies office, but make it flexible, make it a workspace that works for them instead of some kind of anvil around their neck that's just dragging them down. I completely agree. And I think that the, t- the funniest thing here is 
we're actually moving space right now. We're, we're at 300 North LaSalle here in Chicago. We're moving to 71 South Wacker. It's a beautiful space. Um, but the reason was is that when we were negotiating at LaSalle where we were, they figured incorrectly that we would not want to hassle with having to move and rebuild. And so they put us to put the screws to us and said six year lease and all this other junk. And we had to take space uh, or commit to taking space in the next two years that we didn't even know if we needed. And it was stupid. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, yeah, they're negotiating in the past. Like you were way more tuned into what your optionality is now. And in the past that, that deal probably would have been very similar to any other thing you could get anywhere else. But once flexibility is out there, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Companies prefer it. I mean, and right now they're at like two or two and a half, maybe 3% of all their workspace at the moment is some kind of flex, either from us yep. or from, you know, one of these other guys. Well, that number's going to go up. That number's not going down. It's like e-commerce in 1995. Mm-hmm. It was all very exciting. Only a handful of people were using it. There was pets.com. There was Webvan that was going to bring you the groceries. There was... Uh, even eBay, which which claimed they were going to just reinvent the shopping experience and make it a fun game, those were a little bit wrongheaded. And a lot of those companies failed. I mean, eBay is a fraction of the importance it was back in the day. I was going to say, e- eBay's best product right now is that it's spun off StubHub and it did a great job. Like, its investments are a lot better than the actual it's a company. It's private equity firm. It is yeah. absolutely a PE firm. That's so true. Yeah, and it was like 40 times bigger than Amazon. And Amazon's idea was, we're not reinventing anything. We're going to give you the stuff that you've always wanted and you will always want. You're going to be able to choose more stuff, get it fast at a good price. Yep. And that's one of the, like, the famous Bezosisms that I really love. It's like People ask him all the time, he says, hey, Jeff, tell me what's going to be different in 10 years. And I say, that's not the right question. You should be asking what's going to be the same in 10 years. People are going to want more stuff, faster, lower price, easier. And I think that's true in office, too. So I, th- I think the thing that confused some of these co-working folks is they're like, oh, well, in 10 years, everything's going to be different. It's going to be red leather couches and music and a marching band's going to come through on your birthday. And Actually, no, office is where people come together to get stuff done. It is a place to be productive and to be comfortable and happy. And you work in large groups. You know, you work in a, a company that's thousands of people. You work in a department that's like 50 people. That's by far the majority. So let's say that's still true. What else are they going to want? Better, faster, cheaper. They just want to make it easier. And so that's what Notel does. We, we try to make it easier for the company to just get what they want uh, without a bunch of hassle and headaches and change control and long-term commitments. And in order to deliver that, we've had to reinvent a lot about the way the, the, the real estate business and the office business works. I think just to hammer the point home uh, for the listener on, on this company, why I think it's so unique and, and interesting and just smart is uh, going back to my story about having the new space, they made this assumption and then I literally was like in the same conversation, turned around and was like, well, there's also five companies I know with 150 plus people who are leaving and I can sublease uh, in a phone call. Like literally I, I can have this for 18 months done and they've spent a bunch of money renovating it and like I'm out. And that's good-ish, yeah. but it's not good enough for most big, you know, we'll call them grown-up companies. And the reason is that I'm assuming – somebody else's space that was built for them and not for me. And that, I think, is the unique part about your business is that these spaces are outfitted properly. They're not just not just like a retrofit. It's not a, a janky like, hey, you know, I called a buddy and got a favor in to move space. This is you're giving companies immense flexibility and empowering them to have everything that they need and want but not be beholden to anyone. And I think that's the secret that is going to make you guys go through the roof. 
I think so. I mean, everything that they need and want, right? Like, what does it mean? What it means is a famous media company needs to set up in New York where they're going to entertain media and do previews of their new shows. It's one of their highest profile spaces in the world. Their big headquarters is somewhere else in California, but Notel delivers that to them like a super fabulous spot saves them money and it continues to give them flexibility if they need to make it bigger or smaller move it somewhere else in town it's all in our portfolio and we're able to deliver on that but that involved reinventing the way the whole thing works you know you could go to an old school italian restaurant and say hey you know i want to be able to choose nine different dishes tasting size and i want it really fast and the, the chef could tell you forget about it this thing has worked this way forever i'm not changing anything for you or in our case, you could take it on board, try to rethink the whole supply chain and the process and the way you run your kitchen to try to make that possible at the level of quality that you expect. And that's what we've been getting ourselves in position to do. We, we, you know, one of the things we say around here is we try to mass produce masterpieces. We're opening a dozen offices a week in different parts of the world. We are pushing a lot of volume through, which means we're getting really good. We have a lot of process. We have a lot of supply chain. And it's always tailored to the company. They never look alike. The Notel logo is never on anything. And then when you phone us up and you say, hey, you know, we're kind of shutting down this sales team and we're going to flip it into a bunch of engineers and all those phone booths and stuff that we had. We don't need them anymore. We need to change this office. We probably need to move it. And we're like, well, no, you don't need to move because we have built a system for designing and deploying office that actually changes that's modular and flexible. So even inside the space, more or less space. Yeah, sure. But change the space too. And that, that's been a really big innovation for us the last couple of years. Oh, it's huge. And of, of course the, the owner of the Italian restaurant is Donnie Brasco and he's saying, forget about it. Like it's na- <laughs> naturally. Um, so I, I have kind of a, not a last question per se, but just one question that I think is, would be interesting. Um, when you saw, and I think those of us in the investor space started to see, and this was before they filed to go public, but just you started to see like kind of the wheels a little bit spinning weird on WeWork, and you guys were all the way in on investing in property, in property, investing in in space for companies, and you see right. WeWork start to area. turn to yeah. try to monetize in that space. Uh, which I heard kind of underlings from around Chicago real estate. You know, we've got partners at MB Real Estate and all these other places, and they they would whisper that like WeWork was sucking up space that they weren't going to put a giant WeWork sign on. They were just going to build it out for other other companies. What were you thinking there? Were you were you seeing like like holy cow? It took them four years to figure this out, or what, what was the thought there? Every year for the last four years, they've announced some kind of high profile program that sounds like us. Yeah, and. Each year, it gets a little closer to being like us. And so the, the version of it that they've been running for the last year or so, they call HQ. Yep. That, it borrows a lot of the stuff. So, you know, flattery, I think imitation is the sincerest form uh, of flattery. And you know, it's because we're right. And, and as they as they got a little closer. But the thing is that they're not actually that big. Like, if you add us and them together, we're not 1% of the global office market. You're what, like we 4, four million square feet thereabout? Yeah, we're about 5 million. 5 million. And they're bigger than us yep. by a big chunk. But you add it together, and 99% of the world is somebody oh, else. Yep. And so we were very infrequently bumping into them as, like, you know, a dangerous rival. The the real The real work is to change behavior. So if you think about, like, the old days of the landline telephone and in the 90s, people started getting cell phones and really a lot of them. I think by 2000, only half of people had mobile phones. 
So it took quite some time before everybody was on mobile phones, and there's still some landlines around, but we're sort of mostly on the other end of it now. Yep. The competition back then between, like, you know, the early mobile phone companies, and this is when we launched Virgin Mobile, the competition really wasn't against each other. It was against this old way of doing things. It was about changing consumption. And here, that's, here's, that's, who, that's who we compete with. We compete against DIY. You know, for still a lot of companies, the default is, oh, I should just get a lease. I need my own place. You know, I know a guy. I have a pal. He hooked me up. I know an architect, whatever. The total cost of doing that, the total time of doing that, there's just nobody who can, once they pencil it up, it's not rational. So that's over now, but that message still needs to spread and that conviction uh, needs to arrive to, to, to really all companies. The uh, former CEO of Cisco, John Chambers, I had a chance to talk to him and his uh line I think I took away is the most important was you're never battling against competitors. You're always battling against the market. And I mm-hmm. think this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, there's always going to be competitors that come and go, but ultimately your, your biggest opponent here is that you've got to change the market's way of doing things and, and persuade them that you've got a better way to do it. Yeah. I mean, office, people are going to need office. So that much is fine. And it's, it's we're an easier way to get it done. I think we're going to win. So we have the wind at our back on that. Uh, we did have a big giant, you know, Goliath to borrow the storytelling. We were David against Goliath for, for a while. And now Goliath tipped over. and it's, it's Goliath it's ran so, out of food. <laughs> <laughs> it happens so rarely in business. Like, I, I've been having trouble thinking of a story of one of these, like, challenger narratives. Uh, you know, Amazon eventually surpassed eBay, but eBay didn't just, like, collapse no no or they're still there facebook I mean, beat myspace but they meet the, they beat them week by week by week or and, and you know google beat yahoo but it was just like a steady surpassing yep none of those had the opportunity we have of this giant just tipping over and there's a lot of risks that come along with that but it's it's quite special if you're a big customer and you run a big company or whatever run a big team there's actually no one else you can call anymore uh than us if you want to put an office in any of the big cities in the world overnight like there are a lot of companies that work in the kind of office and flexible sure. working area, but we're in 10 countries across Europe, South America, North America, Asia. We're in the biggest cities. We are able to do things that, that no one can do at this point. And it's really a distinctive offering. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. Not to keep name dropping here, but I was, I had um, the co-founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph is on a book tour and I had him in um, about a month ago. And obviously, a very good example to your point about Yahoo and Google is Blockbuster Netflix. Very different. It's not like this. Um, mm. But if you guys achieve what I think the market is, the market TAM that is there, plus what you are setting out to achieve, I think this story goes down in business lore. I, I think this is one of those, you know, the, the Netflix Blockbuster, albeit the only thing that makes that one unique like this one is that. There was a moment when they walked in the office of Blockbuster and offered to sell themselves for a very small amount of money, and the Blockbuster guys laughed him out of the out of the room. And he and Reed um, actually took a couple of Blockbuster movies that were sitting on one of the shelves at the Blockbuster HQ, and they still have it in their office. Um, Amazing. And, and that's a similar yeah. thing where they imploded. And you look back at the story when you guys achieve whatever the monetary or other uh, valuation that you guys achieve in the end here. And you're going to look back and be like, do you remember we work? Holy, like what? what was that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That moment of total victory. And then if you fast forward a little bit in this Netflix story, they're taking on way bigger, uh, markets and new battle now. now. Yeah. Content, content yeah. war. Yeah. Yeah. So as they march and so for us, I think it's a long story. We're, we're not that big. Um, it has been a really good year in the competitive landscape and we're going to continue getting 
just a lot bigger. It'll be a while before we're a major, you know, double-digit percentage, let's say, of the different office markets around the world. It'll be a long time. Took Amazon from like '94 to 2014, like about 20 yeah. years, 25 years, yep. to get to a high single-digit percentage of retail. Like they're, they're not like even 10 percent of all U.S. retail yet. Are they te- Google, now, I, I thought they were at like 14 or something at one point, but. Maybe that's global. Yeah, maybe like, I don't even know. Or, or maybe e-commerce is in the yeah. rate in the mid-teens, and Amazon's like half. That's what it is. It, I'm thinking of like the that. e-commerce yeah. compared to retail, not Amazon. You're correct. Yeah, but there is this pattern in startup land that um, there's this guy John Nesheimer wrote a lot of books about startups, and he compared a whole bunch of different industry adoption curves, and and he had this really interesting rule of thumb, which is the the gorilla, like the market leader, will get to something like 30 percent of a total market. Uh, so, like, Google is 30% of American advertising. And uh, Uber, it only took them 10 years. Uber is, like, 30% of American taxi rides in revenue. Uh, and, and the, you know, the American advertising market's big, but it's only $100 billion. Mm-hmm. The office market in the cities where we operate today is around a trillion. It's 10 times bigger. So if it's possible for us to get anywhere close to that, this is like the biggest business I've ever been around. So it, it will be a long journey. It's going to be really hard, but it is, I, I'm very excited about uh, just, I don't know. It's an opportunity that was handed to us and I'm going to do my best. I, uh, I hope you stay in touch with us on this journey because I would love, 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 love. First off, I would love to know if you guys end up going public and I can invest early enough to make it work worthwhile, <laughs> but I would love to have you come back at some point and, and tell the story again in, in retrospect. Cause I, I just think this is one of those, I think three things I think is a very cool company and a very unique story. I think you're a person who is very reflective, which makes the story even better. Um, and then there is of course the, the Goliath's drop. Yeah. we got to see, check back with me next year and I'll have a better uh, retrospective view on where we've gotten by then and what it all meant. A hundred percent. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Really a pleasure. It was fun. If you have any questions you want me to take a stab at, DM me on Instagram at Technoy or at Katoon to invest in featured startups or to apply to pitch on the Startup Showcase live on WGN Radio. Go to technoy.com. Boom, that's a wrap.